Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Luke Haskell Apologetic Show on the Four Persons Network. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, make way for the hammer of heretics himself. Luke Haskell. Friday night means the Luke Haskell show, and here he is, the hammer of heretics himself. Luke, how are things out on the left coast? <laughs> yeah, uh, California with a K. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, well, I'm trying to just uh, not focus on it and live in my little uh, conservative Kern County here. It's kind of like an, al- uh, an island in the middle of it all. Mm-hmm. Lighting one candle, the curtain set a curse in the darkness, huh? <laughs> yeah. So yep. tonight we're going to get into uh, we we've been we've been covering the priesthood and the Eucharist, and tonight we're going to get into the uh, kind of take a step back because this is where you should go before you go to receive our Lord, especially if you're in a state of mortal sin, which uh, most of us at one time or another have fallen into that unfortunate position at some time in our lives. Um, So we're going to talk about confession tonight, and uh, like the Eucharist, like the priesthood, very, very strongly biblical, very strong biblical case for the sacrament of reconciliation, otherwise known as uh, confession, where would you like to start? Well, John, uh, I've been in a lot of debates over the years, and uh, uh, one of the thing that, things that I've noticed is when we try to actually show uh, typology, which uh, uh, you know Paul describes, uh, Protestants, they, if they get in a catch and they you know, an doing things like using the words well when Protestants and the heirs of believing Catholics have a replacement theology instead of a fulfillment theology is when I think they would begin to really begin to understand Catholicism you know there there are many images in, in the old covenant which show us how the sacraments affect our soul spiritual reality of the new covenant uh, it's just it's just designed that way. I mean, ca- Catholics live the sacramental life in obedience to the faith, so we see it a lot clearer. We have that advantage. And uh, it was uh, Augustine who said, referring to the Old New Testament, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Now, now Protestants, to a point, uh, I don't say this, you know, to ridicule. I say it to establish truth. Uh, Protestants to a point, it, it has to be uh, ignorant in order to separate from 1,500 years of truth. You just you just can't do that without kind of dumbing down uh, understandings. And we discussed this a bit. We talked about you know the process where if if there's Catholic understanding by looking at a literal interpretation, they use a literalist and vice versa. And uh, uh, so this development, it, it began to develop when most people could not even read and offered a, a – uh, it was offering of a, a religion of candy instead of vegetables to the people. 
And mm-hmm. basically, pe- people need to eat their vegetables. I mean, when Luther right. offered a faith alone instead of obedience to the faith, and not even knowing, you know, uh, how to read scripture, but just being simply, you know, told these, these along with uh, uh, giving that literalist process of looking at those words. I mean, it, it's something that all of a sudden they're saying that, uh, well, I don't have to go through all this with the church. Hell, I'm already, I'm already saved. So it, it just uh, it created such a quagmire. And Paul writes, obey your prelates who have the rule over you, for they watch over your souls. And we talked about this in the past where, you know, Paul would think it to be heresy if, you know, you're obeying prelates of another church of a different doctrine. That is not what James referred to at the Council of Jerusalem as the reestablished kingdom of David which is not what Paul called the pillar and foundation of truth, which is not what Paul said that we've come to. We've come to Mount Zion, to the New Jerusalem, to the church of the firstborn. He's referring to this church being prophecy fulfilled. So in this, in this uh, church, in this body, is where he says, uh, uh, but all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Christ, and given and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So in this body is where this act of reconciliation occurs, and obedience to the faith. So if you be- believe the Scriptures are supposed to be an infallible revelation in order to be saved then why would you ignore what God wrote into Scripture that assists us on, on this, you know, the salvation journey? Uh, why would you ignore the physical church God established as a reestablished kingdom of David? Why do you ignore the religion ritual as all across the New Testament that Jesus put in place through an agonizing death on the cross? When he said, it is finished, he was establishing his church. Why do you ignore the sacerdotal office of bishop, priests, and deacons that we showed are clearly in Scripture? Why do you ignore Paul's call to obedience of faith? God incarnate, who is the word through which all things are made, saying, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you, uh, you, you bind are bound. And sin cannot be bound unless they are first confessed. Mm-hmm. So obviously there is somebody you're confessing to. Okay, so let's just back up just just for a moment because I think this is a very important point. Uh, a lot of Protestants that I've talked to when I've entered into to the debate on the issue of reconciliation, the issue of priestly confession, they they say, well, where did, where in the Bible does it say that you are to confess your sins to a priest? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Uh, you go back in the Old Testament and it very clearly says that that you must confess your sins to the priest so then they then they, they kind of shift gears they kind of change their their footing and say okay all right so it says that in the old testament but uh, that was all done away with until you know you know when once jesus died on the cross and 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 I, and I come back and i say hold on a minute ago your story was that Confession is or reconciliation is absent from scripture. That was your story a minute ago. Now your story is okay, it was once there, but it's not there anymore. So it's up to you to take a biblical precept that existed and show us where this was nullified. Uh and nowhere in scripture, Luke, do we see any clue that the obligation to confess your sins to the priest was nullified. In fact, in, in John chapter 20, we see just the opposite, right? Yeah, exactly. And they're, they're ignoring uh, a major factor, and even when they try to come to that conclusion. You know, we went over uh, just, you know, very thoroughly the establishment of the priesthood, in scripture, exegesis, etymology, morphology, the earliest historical documents of the church, it's there. And these priests are consecrating the Eucharist. 
and uh, in the documents were being called the confession. So uh, what is the reason for the priesthood? If Christ says, receive the Holy Spirit, the sins you forgive are forgiven, and there is an established priesthood, then obviously that's their job. Okay, so, so go ahead. I'm sorry. Irenaeus, you know, a disciple of Polycarp, who's a disciple of John the Apostle, said all the apostles were priests. And there's no reconciliation or restoration of grace for those who have already been baptized and then who fell into mortal sin uh, without confession. This is how detrimental living in truth as it exposed to the soul is. We're called to live in truth as it exposed to the soul, and truth is actually falling from grace. Uh, James explained in, in uh, James 4.17, said, he who knows what is right and refuses to do so, for him this is sin. So if you're going against your conscience when you're exposed to all of this, then uh, you're falling into sin right there, and you're falling from grace. And the more you're exposed to it, the more, yeah, and and you go against your conscience, the more you need that confession. Right. So, how would you counter their the the major objection that they make is that well, you know, God knows what my sins are, so so why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Why can't I confess my sins directly to God? I, I'm not trying to get you off a, off track of of your of your program here, but I'd like you to address that question because I get that question a lot. Uh, for the same reason, the church fathers, you know, after quoting Jesus saying, this is my body, they say it's what he said. Therefore, we should believe it. He's God. He is the word made flesh. He is who sustains the entire universe. He said, this is my body. He says, receive the, uh, the Holy Spirit and send you forgiven or forgiven. So it's, uh, it's, it's just a matter of faith. But if we want to, you know, apply a practical understanding, you know, God's the perfect psychiatrist. He knows what we need, uh, you know, a heck of a lot better than we do in, in, in perfect knowledge, perfect understanding of who we are and what happened to us in our fallen nature. So any Catholic who is in deep sin and goes to confession with faith has that experience where through that priest, they know that God, through that priest, is in an act of incredible love, is applying the blood of the cross to that sin. When that priest says, I absolve you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, how much greater, you know, a uh, uh, process of healing on a psychological level can he get? Right. And we are um, we are physical beings. I mean, it is part of our makeup. And um, you know, and and uh, whether we like it or not, we see with our eyes, we hear with our ears, and and we need that that visual. Uh, confirmation um so you know to me it makes it to, to me it makes perfect sense uh but to me i always go back with with with, with this this is kind of my tact i say okay all right i could spend a lot of time explaining to you why it makes sense that jesus would do it this way but rather than go down that rabbit hole why don't we just accept the fact that we can we can haggle all day long about what God could have done or might have done? What we're confronted with, Luke, is what God did do. And whether it makes sense to us or whether we fully understand it, that's the reality that we have to confront and move forward in is what did God actually do and what did God actually require of us? And if you confront the scriptures in that sense, then the then the obligation for sacramental uh, confession is inescapable, right? Well, yeah. And uh, on that point, Catholics have this huge advantage 
I mean, Catholics were living the sacramental life before a word of scripture was written. Protestants, after 1,500 years, had to interpret scripture. So it's a huge difference between living the faith for 2,000 years and finding a faith through interpretation. Because we could take the scriptures and we could show the reestablished kingdom of David you know, we, uh, in the church. We could show how it, the scriptures flow right into the, their fulfillment and the actual historical record and the actual doings of the church. And so the, they don't have that. I mean, the apostles, as part of the gospel, believe they're in the time when prophecy was fulfilled, which included the restoration of the kingdom of David and the church. Uh, and we'll go over this a little bit more. Uh, we've done this in the past, but uh, I want to bring this out again to, to our audience. And uh, so James says, and after they have held their peace, James answered, saying, Men, brethren, hear me. Simon hath related how God first visited to take the Gentiles, a people, to his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets. After these, after these things, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. We, you know, we discussed Acts 15 over and over again, but uh, what people do not get into their heads is that this is prophecy fulfilled of the reestablished kingdom of David. And in this kingdom is where we have the forgiveness of sins through this priesthood. And think about this, when the, when the Jews were longing for the kingdom to return, they were not thinking of the kingdom of heaven above but they also did not comprehend how the kingdom would, would be set up in this world. Uh, it be, it uh, ended up sacramental in nature. And the phrase kingdom of heaven does not refer to a place of death, but the rule of God. Uh, like I said, Mount right. Zion being established. Therefore, in the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, we hear thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So to be born again through water and spirit into the kingdom of heaven is to enter the sacramental reestablished kingdom of David where we live obedience to the faith in the sacramental life. In our process of transform, we do this in our process of transforming grace through which we are saved. Right. You know, Jesus said so, there are weeds planted by Satan in the kingdom. He can only be referring to the reestablished kingdom of David in the church because Satan cannot plant weeds in the eternal state of, uh, of heaven. So this confession is only happened kingdom, right? So, so Luke, the so the first thing they need to understand is that the kingdom of David, the Davidic kingdom, was not set up uh, uh, by accident. It was not set up as as something that God just did to mark the time until the Savior came. It's a model to show us what the what the kingdom of heaven. Uh, will look like and uh by the way just brought uh brought lewis on the show uh lewis how you doing this evening it's a pleasure to be with you guys it's a pleasure to talk to you again luke hi lewis hey, um, I, yeah I, I love defending the faith with you online you come up with some really great stuff yeah lewis is lewis is fantastic and and we love him and we're so glad that uh, that he's a part of the of the wonderful team that we're putting together here. So, all right. So please continue. You you, you were talking about the, the that uh, Jesus and reestablished the the Davidic kingdom, and uh, so, so how does that lead to confession? So it is in the kingdom where we are called to a practice of humility in a mercy of God, where we have confession to a priest apostolic succession. And the reestablished kingdom is where Paul said these words, and they're preserving in the doctrine of the apostles and in the communication and breaking of the bread we hear in Acts 2.24. And, and uh, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner in the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation in which you are called, with all humility and mildness, with patience, supporting one another in charity, Careful to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace, one body, one spirit, as you're called, and one hope of 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He talks over and over again. It says the Corinthians, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no schisms among you. Uh, God would not have established the old covenant priesthood who offered sacrifice for the sins of the Israelites unless it was going to be fulfilled in a supernatural reality in the new. We see this just by looking at how typology, and if we choose to, you know, uh, to look at Augustine's image of this. So in this kingdom is this obedience to the faith, and in this obedience to the faith is the sacrament of, of confession. But why do we have obedience to the faith? Because we're a fallen nature, and we need a guide to what is the true way to fight against our fallen nature. All right, let me direct this question to Lewis real quick. Lewis, um, how would you respond to this this question that we hear that that what what Luke is talking about is it's 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 adding to the finished work of Christ that that Christ atoned for my sins, Christ paid for my sins, and so we're adding this. Respond by telling them first of all that is ridiculous. Repentance, even in general, outside of confession, and confession is a tool by which we repent, the main tool, too. That's like saying if you believe that you should repent daily, you're adding to the finished works of Christ. What they fail to understand, it's not a one-and-done set thing. Christ offers us salvation, but as Scripture mentions over and over, it is a process. Christ says in the cross, yes, you are saved, but then it goes on to, uh, to other parts of the Bible, showing that we have to do other things to not add to the cross, but to accept the cross. Um, Jesus said it himself, those who eat my body and break my blood will have eternal life. Those who repent and are baptized will have eternal life. Those who do, I believe it was, those who endure until the end will be saved. Those who, you know, what will Christ tell the people when he returned? You will Matthew twenty four twelve. So it's not adding to the cross. It's not adding to the cross. It's rather not losing what Jesus has done for us, because the Bible says it very clearly. If you return, like um, I believe in the Book of Hebrews, it says that it talks about people that once had the Holy Spirit abiding in them. But due to their own choices and falling back into apostasy, they lost communion with Christ. So it's not adding to the finished works of Christ. It's remaining in the finished works of Christ. And confession yep. is one of the powerful tools we do so. I mean, um, Luke probably already said it. Um, what did, did Christ tell the apostles? Whatever sins you guys re, uh, forgive or forgiven, whatever sins you guys retain are retained. What does that sound like? Well, <laughs> confession. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I feel like if you if you also look at church history, all before the Protestant Reformation, all Christians, even those in schism, like the Eastern Orthodox, the Oriental Orthodox, the Church of the East, we all have confession. So you really mean to tell me that for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, we were all in error? That's ridiculous. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I hope that answers the question. Yeah. So go ahead, Luke. Please continue. We're, you know, there, there's, continue there's, a verse, there's a verse uh, from Paul to, uh, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that I absolutely love. And if you see this in the context of everything we talked about so far, being inside this kingdom, even in the presence in, in the Eucharist, uh, this verse uh, only makes sense to those of uh, uh, the churches of apostolic succession. Paul writes, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is of the spirit. Well, we see this imagery here of unveiled faces, and then we can contemplate some of Paul's other words, in Galatians 1, or Galatians 3, 
says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who would be before your very eyes, Christ is portrayed as crucified before you. So we are not veiled to this. We are in this, this full spiritual reality. No more types. No more even types of, of a priesthood and sin and offering up real rams and goats or, or scapegoats. Now is the heavenly reality of the blood of Christ being applied every time we go to confession. First at our, our, our baptism, then at uh, confession. Then at every holy mass, where so that uh, uh, Christ presents His body to the Father without spot or wrinkle, that mass uh, is where we are sprinkled with that blood that speaks better than that of Abel. So there is no atonement of sin without the shedding of blood, and in all of these things, the spiritual blood is applied. So but, uh, how does this? How does this tie into what we're told in Hebrews about uh, – and the, I know the language in Hebrews is very, very difficult to understand, but how God entered into, in, into the sanctuary once and for all and, uh, and, and all that. How does that tie into this, this uh, idea of confession? Well, again, we believe as Catholics – not metaphorically, but in a truth that we are the body of Christ and Christ is the head of that body. You know, we believe that when Paul says the bread that we break, is this not participation in the body of Christ? We don't see that as metaphor. We see it in truth. When Paul talks about us being the body of Christ, when he says he makes up for what is lacking in the suffering of Christ, uh, in his own flesh for the church, which is his body. And so in the imagery of Hebrews is very, very deep. And all of these things are in, are, are in Paul's mind as a truth when he talks about Christ, our true Melchizedek and high priest, basically fulfilling Yon Kippur, bringing his own blood into the sanctuary. And in this sanctuary, he is still the high priest. He is still Melchizedek. We just we just talked about this uh, last week, where he is still presenting, you know, his his body. While all of this is going on, the priest is telling to the one at the uh, you know is is giving absolution, and saying, "I forgive you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit." And since you brought up Melchizedek, I uh, just wanted to point out, I just received uh, Eric Ibarra's book on Melchizedek, and I'm going to read that book and uh, uh, try to get him on. Have you have you read that book, and do you have any comments on it? No, no, I haven't. Here lately, I'm sticking with just, you know, going through the Church Fathers a lot. And yeah, uh, of, course, of course, the debate rooms. <laughs> well, but when, I mean, when, I've, when you're, I've already said that I'm going to have to live till I'm 843 years old to read, finish reading the books that I have yet left to read. So, please continue. I won't let you see my library then, because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot I haven't read. <laughs> so, uh, what you're talking about uh, about the Old Testament priesthood. Uh, we, we could, we could uh, show people uh, in the actual verses. In Leviticus 19.20, uh, it reads, If a man carnally lie with a woman that is a bondservant and marriageable and yet not redeemed with a price, nor made free, they both shall be scourged and they shall not be put to death because she was not a free woman. And for this trespass, he shall offer a ram to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the testimony, and the priest shall pray for him and for his sin before the Lord, and he shall have mercy on him, and the sin shall be forgiven. You see here intercession. Uh, Leviticus 5.4, the person that sweareth and uttereth with his lips that he would do either evil or good, and bindeth the same with the oath and his word, and having forgotten it afterwards, understandeth his offense, let him do penance for his sin, 
and offer the flock a ewe lamb or a she-goat, and the priest shall pray for him and for his sin. So uh, what's fascinating is uh, uh, I, I love to, to uh, read about Israel Zoli. Uh, Israel Zoli was the chief rabbi of Rome during World War II, and he converted to the Catholic faith. Uh, there's a time when he was asked by, uh, by uh, I guess it's a, probably a reporter, uh, a Christian reporter. Uh, he, he was asked uh, about uh, leaving uh, Judaism, and uh, he responded, but I have not given it up. Christianity is the integration completion our crown of the synagogue for the synagogue was a promise and christianity is the fulfillment of the promise the synagogue pointing to christianity christianity presupposes the synagogue so you see one cannot exist without the other what i converted to is living christianity so in this living christianity we should truly see that jesus meant what he said when he said i have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law so it's not replacement theology, it's fulfillment theology. And like Augustine explained, this is really easy to see if you, if you see it through his eyes. Uh, we, we read from Paul, and in Hebrews 9, he's describing all these images that are actually fulfilled in Christ in the church. He says, the former indeed had also justification as divine service and a sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made the first wherein were the candlesticks and the table and the setting forth the loaves which is called the holy and after the second veil the tabernacle which is called the holy of holies having a golden censer and the ark of the testament covered about on every part with gold in which was a golden pot that had manna and the rod of Aaron that had uh, the tables of the testament and he goes on and says uh uh of this is not now needful to speak now particularly. Well, there's nowhere else in Scripture where he speaks of this particularly, so this is basically a death blow to Sola Scriptura. So this imagery of the typology and the image of the priesthood uh, shows us that there's no abolishment, there's no removal of these things. They they simply are like... Uh, uh, Israel Zoli is talking about it is the synagogue and the uh, fulfillment of the synagogue in the, in the church with everything in this little bit more materialistic imagery of the letter of the law becoming the spiritual reality of the law. Okay. So Lewis, uh, yeah, I, I can almost hear the, the response of the Protestants will say, well, that's, that's fine for the Old Testament, but in the New Testament it says that there's only one mediator between God and man. Now you're you're creating another another mediator between God and man. How do you how do you respond to that charge? Respond to that every single day. It's extremely well. For starters, when it says mediator, it doesn't mean intercessor. Of course, Christ is the only mediator between man, God and man, but God also commands us in Scripture. I believe St. Paul says this, um, for us to pray for each other to Christ, and that makes us intercessors. Well, what Protestants don't realize is also includes the people in heaven. They are fully capable of doing this. The same way that I can ask a neighbor or a friend to pray for me to Christ, I can ask the people in heaven that are directly next to him. And it's very blatantly in Scripture. Um, take the book of Revelation, which um, fun fact, you probably got, you guys already know, Martin Luther hated that book, along with the book of James and Hebrews and one other book. It shows in Revelations 5.8, those things taking the prayers of the saints on earth and directing them to Jesus. And the book of Tobit, which they removed, doesn't really help them either, because it shows angels doing exactly the same thing, and taking the prayers of people on earth and giving them to the Holy One, which we know to be Christ. Um, what... It doesn't get any more blatant than that. And it's very simple logic. They'll turn around and, and say all the same thing, but the saints are dead. Um, if you think the saints are dead, then Paul's scripture and Christ, more importantly, they lie. 
because he says it himself, those who die in him have eternal life, and eternal life means eternal life. Um, we are not dead when we are in heaven. That's the whole point of the cross. So that's how I respond to them. Well, this is also this is also another example of that process of creating this construct in order to separate from the church, where they take a more literalist process of this, a, a literalist look at this instead of the literal, taking into the the into account the entire image. What is being lived, the faith and practice that's being lived. So when Paul is actually talking to Timothy, who's the bishop of Ephesus, he's basically telling him what he wants to to happen in the Holy Mass. That uh, he wants us to offer prayer, supplication, (laughs) intercession, and thanksgiving, which we get the word Eucharist, for all men. For there's one meter between us and God, that's Jesus Christ. So Christ is the mediator of not just this idea of prayer, which uh, Protestants get, you know, uh, tangled up in when they try to tell us that, uh, you know, we're, we're praying to dead saints. But he's the mediator of the entire new covenant. So then we have that image again of our high priest Melchizedek. We have the high the image of the body of Christ. But in the body of Christ, we actually mediate with him to the Father as the body in the Holy Mass. So it is all those who have gone before us in heaven, the spirits of the just made perfect. So then I would say, okay, uh, there's one meteor between us and the first person of the Trinity. That's the second person of the Trinity. Show me in Scripture where it forbids intercession by others to the second person of the Trinity. Right. Isn't this, Luke, what you're talking about is this idea of synergy that they, that they don't understand that, that God does not work his will uh, on us. He works it through us with our cooperation. The two are not mutually exclusive. It's still God's work. But we have to cooperate with that grace? Isn't that what you're talking about here? Well, exactly. And, uh, you know, that, that, that brings something, something to mind. When uh, Peter says you are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, you know, uh, Protestants think that the royal priesthood just simply by faith. You're a member of the royal priesthood because you're participating in the act of offering the true Passover uh, through Christ, our high priest Melchizedek, to the Father for the general redemption of the world. Big difference between just by faith. So so we're re-sacrificing Christ every day then, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's two parts to a Jewish sacrifice. The the killing of the... uh, Offering and the present presentation of the offering. The Holy Mass is the second part. It's offering the fruit to the Father. Everything has to be seen into in the Jewish context. Context. Now, when it comes to confession, uh, I've noticed a pattern in the tradition of how Protestants deny confession in the priesthood. In the process of separation from the Church uh, through man's lower nature, over the last 500 years, they separated from the spiritual reality of Christianity. And this is just sad, but through the false understanding of works, uh, which we have done an exhaustive study on before, of course, they have separated from Paul's call to obedience to the faith. And the call to live the sacramental life, and there is no living as a Christian of the new covenant without living the sacramental life. So when it comes to these the, the, the apostles talking about confessing your sins, uh, in the New Testament, they choose not to see more than one application for this con- confessing the sins. So there's in Scripture it talks about confessing your sins to actually others of the congregation of believers, or or they see it as only to confess your sins to God alone in prayer. But if Scripture is also saying confess your sins to one another. 
uh, I really haven't seen Protestants doing that lately in church where they're giving their intimate details of their sins to other people. So, All right, so now Paul, walk uh, us walk us through the process, Luke. Walk us uh, so 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 let's say that that uh, that I'm a I'm a person who is in mortal sin. So I I go into the into the confessional and and I make a a, a sincere confession, say my act of contrition, do my do my uh my penance um you know all that so walk us through the process of what happens what changes in me before i walked into that confessional to when i walk out for for our listeners well before you even walk into that confessional through faith you understand that when god the word made flesh said receive the holy spirit who sends you forgive are forgiven you understand through that as you walk in there and with a contrite heart you have the ability through that priest through the mercy of god to actually have those sins removed and so it is saving faith that even gets you to that confessional so in that confessional, you're presenting your sins. You're pouring out your heart. You are living in a process of humility in order to step away from the lower nature. And you're giving your everything. You're on that, you're kneeling there. And you're pouring out your heart to God through this priest and God through this priest in the mystical body is saying, I love you and I forgive you. And you hear Christ talking to Peter, how many times should we forgive? And Christ basically says, you never stop, but you never stop forgiving when there's a contrite heart. Right. So now, at that point, so let's correct what they what what they believe. They believe that in in our view, you go in there, you say your confession, uh, you you know you say your three hail marys or or what have you, and uh, if you walk out of, of the uh, the confessional and you're hit by a bolt of lightning, you automatically go straight to heaven, right? That's not what we believe. So ex- explain why, um, for you know, for some of us or for most of us, actually, um, you know, there's the issue of purgatory. There's the issue of uh, of atonement. So ex- explain the difference between the forgiveness of the sin and the atonement of the sin. Well, I don't mean as go ahead. I think what you mean is the removal of the sin. Purgatory is cleansing us of the sins we, you know, struggle to. Um, Jesus, of course, takes away our sins, but it has to be consensual. If you're a person that really struggles and has an attachment to a certain sin and you die with it, but you, you still yet die in a state of grace, you cannot pass on until you have fully given that sin over to Christ. Um, and that's what purgatory is for. But um, Luke probably knows how to explain it better. I'm sorry for interrupting you, Luke. Well, there is forgiveness, but if we go back to seeing this forgiveness, there's also the loving Father giving us lessons. Uh, in Second Samuel, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child that is born to you shall die. And the Lord struck the child of Ur's wife, and uh, uh, wife bore to David, and uh, it became sick and died. So there's punishment for sin even after one receives forgiveness. In Revelations 21, it says, but nothing unclean shall enter it. So nothing sh- unclean shall enter the heavenly state 
So this is another principle of Catholicism, that nothing unclean, nothing with the stain of sin will enter heaven. So the, this stain is really ego. So purgatory is actually a mercy of God. So for us to be in the presence of perfection, if we have this ego on our, on our minds, it actually decreases our joy because we have guilt. So right. in order to be perfect in a perfect union with God, in perfect joy, that guilt needs to be removed. And this... Uh, this removal, of course, you know, we hear different verses that it's by fire. And what I, what I find fascinating is uh, the Book of Wisdoms, where uh, Jews actually believed in, in purgatory. We see that in Maccabees. So we have definitely biblical, you know, uh, 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 facts to, to defend it with. In uh, the wisdom, it says, but the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment will ever touch them in the eyes of the foolish. They seem to have died, and their departure was thought to be an affliction and destruction, but they are at peace. For though in the sight of men they are punished, their hope is full of immortality. Having been disciplined a little, they will receive great good. We have this idea of this purification afterwards, and we mm-hmm. see it in Hebrews 12.22 also, where Paul is showing us the beatific vision, and he's saying, you have come to Mount Zion, to the New Jerusalem, to the church of firstborn, to thousands of angels, to the spirits of the just made perfect. So we are in their presence, in this holy mass, in this beatific vision, and they were made perfect in order to get there. All right, so, so let me ask you this. How much does the equation change? depending on my disposition. In other words, here's, here's what I'm saying. Um, I know that if I go to, uh, to confession and I make a sincere confession uh, and, and uh, a sincere act of contrition, I know that my sins are forgiven. Uh, but let's just say scenario number one, I go in there, and it's 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 kind of a mixed bag, all right. I, I am sort of kind of sorry for my sins, but I'm also sorry for the punishment of my sins. I'm for the trouble that I've gotten myself into. So I make kind of a imperfect uh, uh, confession. Versus scenario number two, I. The only thing on my mind is how sorry I am, how remorseful I am, how much I've hurt God, how ashamed I am uh, for, for for hurting God, for acting against his will. And I just have this deep pain, burning pain in my heart and sorrow for the sins, for the sake of the sin, not for the sake of the punishment. Describe the difference uh, in in terms of what happens to my soul in those two scenarios, uh, that, that 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 is a really good question and, and probably a tough one. But uh, from from my perspective and what I see, uh, purgatory is of course outside the concept of time, and we don't know. You know, we can't calculate how long you're in purgatory. We just know that you die in a state of grace in order to even go to purgatory. You know, if, if you don't die in a state of grace, you don't go to purgatory. So can we say that a confession that is a little bit more reluctant uh, does not remove sins? Uh, only God knows the actual amount of that reluctance. Yeah, I know what, what I'm what – I'm... What I'm basically asking is um, the more perfect the contrition, the less the need for purgation after a, after death, correct? In other yeah, words, that, right? That, next, that was my next point. Yeah. All right. I'm that sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Please continue. 
No, that was my next point. That 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 was uh, that was basically we were thinking the same thing. Please continue. So, uh, if if we were getting back on track on the way Protestants, you know, are looking at this confession, uh, they see this confession not with a priest, but confessing to God just directly, or they'll even read the verses about con- confessing to other members of the church, but uh, I don't see any of them fulfilling this. Well, in Matthew 5.24, Jesus tells us, leave there thy offering before the altar and to be reconciled to thy brother, and then come uh, and then offer the, thy gift. So this is different from the confession to the priest for the absolution of sins. Uh, we also went over the priesthood pretty thoroughly. So Paul tells Titus, for this cause I left you in Crete, that thou shouldest, uh, in order the things that are wanting, should have set in order the things that are wanting, and should have ordained priests in every city. So Titus, as a bishop of the church, goes out, and uh, he ordains priests who will uh, participate in the sacrament of confession. So the word priest is in the etymology of elder, presbyter, presbyteros, and the earliest historical records show us priests consecrating the Eucharist. Just that establishment of confession in John 20, 21, as we discussed. So Jesus is telling the apostles that they are being given the authority of the Father who sent Christ into the world so that they could forgive man's sins. He does so by way of the power of the Holy Spirit through this word breathing. He says they breathed on them or giving the, uh, the nature of God. If you look at Job 33, 4, uh, it reads, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And Job 32.8 says, but it is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. So in the same way God breathes life into man, he breathes the sacramental realities into the church, which is his flesh. And we even see this at Pentecost through the wind and the tongues of fire. So Protestants quote the Pharisees that only God can forgive sins while they ignore the words of God. Protestant limits its capacity for faith in Scripture by rationalizing away Catholic concepts that are in Scripture. It's a Judeo-Catholic book, and uh, it's actually a sad state of affairs because it is a psychological conditioning that leads to not truly seeing Scripture. They can't. It's Catholic. Louis, your comments? I said, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Hello? Luke pretty we much said it's, it's, it's extremely Catholic. Um, it's extremely straightforward, but it have a habit of just cherry-picking verses they don't like. Or something they'll decide to do. And it connects to their denial of apostolic succession. They'll say, oh, yes, the apostles could, could forgive sins. But after they died, God died too. But yet they don't see that through church history and even scripture with apostolic succession, they passed down that role to the bishops, and the bishops delegated some of that role also to the priests. So um, their historical ignorance plays a big burden now that the Bible is teaching. Like, obviously, Catholics, you can't separate God's written word for his oral words. If you separate one from the other, you won't have his complete future. And um, this kind of relates to everything in regards to their misunderstanding of the Bible. Right. They're always complaining Catholics take away from Scripture or add Scripture, but by them taking away from his oral words, they're the ones who are taken away from the Bible. In addition to that, well, we already know the story of how they removed books from Scripture, but I'm not trying to, like, change the goal. Po- I'm not trying to change the, the, the point here, but you get the idea. And uh, Go ahead. Very quickly, explain the difference between a venial sin and a mortal sin. Well, a, v- a venial sin is a sin that does not separate us from, from, from grace. A mortal sin actually separates us from the grace of God. Uh, 
It is the Holy Spirit actually leaving our soul. And therefore, uh, we, we basically, if, you know, we fall into death spiritually. And the yeah. main... And the main character of that is uh, is is the malice, the malice and the de- deliberation of the sin, right? Well, yeah, ex- exactly. Uh, uh, you have full knowledge that you are committing a mortal sin and go through with it. You know, uh, you're actually going against the Holy Spirit because it is your own conscience that the Holy Spirit works in. So uh, when when Scripture says uh, uh, when it talks about the prophecy of the laws being written on our hearts, you know those laws written on our hearts is our conscience. Uh, Paul talks about the Gentiles in the church, and he says the Gentiles do what the law requires without ever knowing the law. Their conscience bears witness because right. the law has been written on our hearts. So that mortal sin is actually a denial of God by going against what the Holy Spirit is telling you. Right. So So I had a person one time ask me, well, he said, do you really believe that uh, God would send a soul to hell because it accidentally fell into mortal sin? Uh, Anybody that thinks that you can accidentally fall into mortal sin doesn't understand what mortal sin is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, to get back to, you know, this uh, uh, this idea of them not seeing confession to a priest, you know, we talked about this last week, and and I told you that, you know, I, I've asked this question to people, and of course they can't come up with the, the, with, with with an honest answer or they end up, you know, in the Catholic Church. <laughs> but I asked them uh, if the Arian heresy, you know, was so volatile that it almost, you know, created uh, a complete separation in the church. It almost uh, destroyed the church because the apostles and their disciples are so adamant about keeping one doctrine of faith and morals. Then why don't we see in the historical record the crying out of the pages of history uh, if the priesthood began after apostolic times, if belief in the Eucharist began after apostolic times, if the Holy Mass as the true Passover for the general redemption of the world began after apostolic times, if confession began after apostolic times, if baptism of infants began after apostolic times, you don't see it because it was the teaching of the apostles. Uh, Hippolytus, you know, is writing in 215 AD. So you don't see anybody questioning Hippolytus. Hippolytus writes, the bishop conducting the ordination of the new bishop shall pray God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pour forth now that power which comes from you, from your royal uh, spirit, which you gave to your beloved son, Jesus Christ, and which he bestowed upon his holy apostles, and grant this your servant, whom you have chosen for the episcopate, the power to feed your holy flock and to serve without blame as your high priest, ministering night and day in to propitiate unceasingly before your face and to offer to you the gifts of your holy church and by the spirit of the high priesthood to have the authority to forgive sins in accord with your command. You don't see anybody during that time period saying, Hippolytus, you're a heretic. Right. Very well said. Uh, we're, up, we're up against the end of the show. I just want, before we go, uh, I just want to tell you, both of you how much uh, I love you as brothers and how much I appreciate what you do for, um, for this show and, and for this network. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And Lewis, would you would you end us with a closing prayer, please? Thank you, John. And and the show that you put on, we thank you for that. 
I love you both of you. Um, I, I consider you guys to be older brothers, role models, and of course I will gladly lead us with a prayer. I'm always open to growing in the faith Christ started, the Catholic faith. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, for bringing us together and doing... Oh, Luke, we just lost uh, uh, Lewis. Something uh, uh, apparently happened with his connection. Why don't you go ahead and finish finish our closing prayer? Why don't we just, you know, saying our Father. Okay. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. St. Joseph, terror of demons. Pray for us. And thank you for for everything you have done and all the time you put into creating this. It's it's been an absolute labor of love. And I just just love what we're doing here. And, uh, again, thank you so much. God bless you and good night. Good night.